Welcome to Journey Church. My name is Nathan McCallum. It is my pleasure to preach God's Word uh, again this morning to you. Uh, And so I invite you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open that up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be beginning a series today in Matthew chapter 5 that will last about eight weeks. And so, uh, yeah, all in Matthew chapter 5. So uh, if you're like, where are we going to be next week? Matthew chapter 5. Week after that, Matthew chapter 5. So just go ahead and find your home there in Matthew chapter 5. We are starting a new series today, and we're calling it Counter Kingdom. Counter Kingdom. And basically, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks just about Jesus being about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And one way we talked about this over the last couple of weeks is that one way his kingdom comes on earth is through his church across 2,000 years going into all nations with the good news of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And we do this with the expectation that one day Revelation 7 will be fulfilled, that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will gather around the throne of Jesus Christ and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy of all our, he's worthy of all our praise. Salvation belongs to him. We do that. That's part of the kingdom is sharing the gospel to the nations. But not just to the nations. Last week, we talked about the fact that we're to love our city, the city to which we live, the city in which God has sent us, that we love the city. And how do we do that? That we live within the city, that we're not withdrawn from it, that we are for the city, we're not against it. And yet, we're distinct from the city, not identical to it. And that we bring the good news to bear in all the ways that we can. So we've talked about what does it look like maybe on the ground for the kingdom of heaven to come on earth. But now we're turning our attention to more of the nature of this kingdom. What is Jesus talking about? When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, what is he talking about? What is his kingdom even like? And so for the next next eight weeks, we're looking at the nature of Jesus's kingdom. And as we talked last week, he's establishing it now in the midst of the kingdom of this world, in the midst of it. The new creation has dawned in the midst of the old creation. He's establishing a counter kingdom. Now, I want to be very clear. When I say a counter kingdom, I don't mean that this is Jesus's response to the kingdom of this world. It's not as though this is a chess match between God and the enemy, and he's like, oh, good move, Satan. Well, here's my counter. That's not what we're talking about. From the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, Jesus agreed to come and be the lamb that was slain for our sins. This is not a counter kingdom as a counter move, but rather it's a counter kingdom in that it's counterintuitive to us in a lot of ways. It's counterintuitive in the way that we perceive what blessing actually is. It's counterintuitive in the way that we perceive what success looks like. It's counterintuitive in the way that we perceive the good life. You see, it is a counter kingdom, and he calls this counter kingdom the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospel of Matthew, he calls his counter kingdom the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is that? It's his kingdom, and it's a kingdom that is already, but not yet. We've talked about this before. The kingdom of heaven is already. He launched his kingdom when he began his ministry. If you look at Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew's talking about John the Baptist. Now, I realize he's not 
a Southern Baptist, right? Just John the Baptist because he baptized people. And here's what John the Baptist says in, in chapter three. It says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what does he say? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's right there. Some of your translations might say the kingdom of heaven has come near. You go to the next chapter over, Jesus has been baptized. He's now gone out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and has gone through that temptation. And now he's preaching the gospel. And this is what Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying what? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. We see the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's at hand. Therefore, it's not something that we just kind of sit by as we are saved Christians and kind of sit in our pews and just wait for the kingdom of heaven to come in some distant future. No, the kingdom of heaven is already broken into this broken and dying world. It's already. But the kingdom of heaven is also not yet. It's not fully consummated yet. We still see the effects of sin everywhere we look. My gosh, we've seen it this week. What a tough week for our brothers and sisters in Memphis. What a tough week for us this close. And we've seen it in our own city. The effects of sin are still here. Death, despair, depression, anger, hostility. We see the effects of sin we see the brokenness of our world. And we are to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven because that's the mission of the church. But it will not fully come on heaven and he from heaven to earth until the very end when he consummates it. But because he will bring heaven to earth eventually and it will be fully consummated, that means that what we do in this life is not wasted. It's not wasted. We're to be about his work until he returns. The kingdom of heaven already begun, not fully culminated, so we're at work in the world and we're called to be a part of it as his people. But what should we expect as members of the kingdom of God? What does that look like? And so to answer that, over the next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at the Beatitudes, which is the opening salvo of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his longest sermon in the Gospels about what the kingdom of God looks like. And many of you, maybe if you've grown up in church, have heard the phrase, the Beatitudes, but maybe you're not sure where it's at in the scriptures, or maybe you have like never heard even the term, like what is a Beatitude? I don't even know what that means. And so we're gonna be looking at that. And let's just talk briefly, like what is a Beatitude? Why is it called that? Well, it actually comes from the Latin word, I'm not good at Latin, beatus, I believe, which means blessed or happy. Blessed or happy. That's what a beatitude means, a statement about blessing or happiness. And we find them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Now, they're kind of repeated similarly in Luke, but we're going to be doing the ones in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And what I find really interesting is actually the location of the Beatitudes, the location of it, because they're in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is worth noting. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're like, I don't even remember what that is, Jesus is laying out for us what it looks like to live in the kingdom, like what the expectation is for the kingdom of God. He lays out like, this may ring a bell to you if you're not sure what the Sermon on the Mount is, things like, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, if you have anger in your heart, You've already committed murder in your heart. Does that sound familiar? 
Or maybe that you're a city on a hill. You're a light to the world. That's Sermon on the Mount. Or you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. You hear the Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount. Build your house on the rock, Sermon on the Mount. This is all a lot of, this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom. But he starts that entire thing with blessing, with blessing. Because the nature of the kingdom of heaven is blessings. Grace empowers obedience. Love and blessing fuels life and transformation. The nature of the kingdom of God is blessing, it's joy. And Jesus calls us to live in a specific way, he does. I'm not trying to skimp on that. He calls us to live in a specific way in his kingdom, but it's gotta be grace empowered living. And he starts with grace. He starts with blessing. And it's often grace and blessing as we read these. It's often happiness and celebration in places that you probably wouldn't expect to find it. And this is the pursuit of everyone here, myself included. Every one of us, we long for a life that's filled with joy, that's filled with blessing, that's filled with happiness. For goodness sake, our own country And the founding declaration is that we have this unalienable rights to life, to liberty, which is independence, freedom, to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's in the air we breathe, right? We we want this. We long for this. But what if, what if we're wrong about how we find that? What if we're wrong about how we actually find life and independence and freedom and happiness? What if we're pursuing it in the wrong way? I think this series is gonna restructure our minds as people of God about what Jesus' counter kingdom has to say about those pursuits. So we begin today with the first blessing, the first beatitude, and we're gonna frame the conversation around Matthew 5, 3. We're gonna frame it around one question and two realities. The question is, what is a poor spirit? What is a poor spirit? And then we're gonna have two realities to discuss, which is the blessing of a poor spirit and the hope of a poor spirit. So what is a poor spirit in the first place? And then we're gonna look at the blessing of that type of a spirit and the hope of that type of a spirit. So to begin with, just like what is a poor spirit? Well, let's look at, the, at Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. Let's look at the way Matthew and the way Jesus sets up the Beatitudes. Here's what he says. Matthew chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now I'm going to stop there. I just want to set the stage for us before we get into the first beatitude. So who's in the audience? Who do we see here? We see his disciples, and we see curious crowds, large curious crowds. His disciples are there. In Matthew chapter four, he's already said, come follow me. They've said, game on, let's do this. They leave their jobs behind. They go and follow Jesus. They have no idea what he's actually about yet. They don't understand the kingdom of heaven, but they go, they follow him. And then you have curious crowds. Well, why is that? Well, because if you look at Matthew four, right before this, Jesus is going about the region. He's healing the sick. He's 
He is basically casting out demons. I mean, they're amazed. They've never seen anybody with such authority over the spiritual world, with such good teaching, with the ability to heal disease. They're amazed. So they're following him. They're curious. They, they haven't left their life behind necessarily, but they're curious crowds. There's probably some religious leaders in the crowds. There's most likely some Romans in the crowds because anytime a big crowd gathers around somebody, the Romans are there to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. And this is who is probably in the crowds. And here goes Jesus on the mountain. And you can imagine the scene. You get the buildup. I mean, John the Baptist had quite a following and he's baptizing people and people are coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized. It's starting to build and John's saying stuff like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like, what is that? Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Oh, could this be the time? And then Jesus shows up and he gets baptized and a dove descends from heaven and he, they hear a voice that this is my son. It's like, oh my gosh, here we go. And then you've got Jesus saying, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can imagine the intensity the crowd getting large, the anticipation of the kingdom mounting. And so Jesus sits down and he basically says, let me tell you about this kingdom. Let me tell you about my counter kingdom. And you have to believe that no one was quite prepared for what he was about to say. How could they be? Jesus's kingdom has a way of doing things that are a little different, of raising the call of holiness, but he begins with humble beginnings. It begins with blessing and it begins with a word of grace. And this word of grace is so unexpected because the recipients of this grace are unexpecting of it. Jesus doesn't launch his kingdom salvo with rallying the troops to go defeat Rome. He launches his kingdom by redefining real happiness, real blessing. And what's the first word of this real blessing? Let's read it. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> what? You got large crowds gathered around you and your first thing is like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Does that seem unexpected to any of you? Blessed are the poor in spirit? To understand how this kind of redefines blessing and how his kingdom is so counterintuitive to the kingdom of this world, we first need to understand what he even means by poor in spirit. And there's two Greek words that Matthew could have used from the Greek to say poor. One of those is penes, which just basically means barely enough to get by. Like it means poor, it's like paycheck to paycheck. Like I don't have any extra cash for you. I am just living by the skin of my teeth. I'm barely there, but I'm there. I'm poor, but I'm there, that's penes. The other Greek word is tohas, which is basically like utter depravity, I mean, utter poverty, reduced to begging, destitute of any kind of wealth, hand to mouth type of stuff. And the word that Matthew chooses is tohas. So when you think about like absolute poverty, what do you see in your mind? What do you see? You see third world countries, maybe no clean water. Do you think about those infomercials where you see children that are starving? What do you see when you think about absolute poverty? Do you think about where we live? Do you think about homeless people? Maybe people on the side of the road. Maybe people sleeping in tents underneath a bridge, just trying to stay out of the elements. What do you think about? I remember back a few years ago when I was doing college ministry, I had a men's group of college students. We would serve occasionally at the Salvation Army. That's not to pat on the back. That's just to say like, that's kind of the image I see. We'd serve food on Friday nights and, and just kind of try to eat and listen to these people's stories and like just people just trying to get by, 
just looking for a place to have a, a warm meal and a place to sleep. I mean, is that what you see? What comes to mind when you hear the word poverty or poor? And think about that and then take that adjective or that image in your mind and apply it to the spirit. Poor in spirit. Matthew uses the strongest Greek word available for poor and then he applies it to the spirit of a person. A person whose spirit is in abject poverty. How can someone's spirit be in abject poverty? How does that work? Well, first I want you to see that notice the spirit in the text is not capitalized. Jesus isn't saying poor in regards to the Holy Spirit. He's not saying blessed are you if you don't have the Holy Spirit, far from it. It's the opposite. But he is saying that you're blessed if your spirit, your inner self realizes its total lack. It's total lack. You see, the poor in spirit know their spiritual resources are lacking. They don't have a wealth of spiritual awesomeness. They're lacking. The poor in spirit know they don't have anything to offer God. The poor in spirit know that they're not qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own merit. Someone who's poor in spirit realizes they've been writing checks to God that, they, that their life can't cash. They realize they're helpless in the eyes of a holy and just God. And so I just ask you right now to think for a minute about your own approach to God. Do you ever come at God as though he owes you? I'm getting a lot of blank stares, which is like, I don't know, or like, no, it's almost, it's offensive that you'd even ask me that. And some of you may be like, yeah, I do, which is grace if you can even see that. I've done that with the Lord. But let me ask you this, have you ever felt anything like this in the time of a trial? I've been trying to serve you the best I can and this is what I get. Ever thought that? Ever said that? Why me, Lord? I've been a good kid. I've been a good kid to you. And this is how you repay me. Really, Jesus? You're gonna let this happen to me? Have you seen her? Do you know him? And I get this, really. Ever had that thought? How about in a time of abundance? Ever been like, I earned this? Saw me. Of course I got that promotion. Of course they think I'm great. Do you have times when you approach God or when your approach to God is dependent on how your life is going? You ever been like when you're good, like you've had a good quiet time, you've been in the word, you shared the gospel with somebody, you helped a lady across the street, you're kind to your neighbor, even take care of their dogs. I mean, that's the special place in heaven for you for that. And in those moments, like you just feel unencumbered to come to Jesus. Like, yeah, here I am. I know you've been dying to talk to me. I've made some time for you, Jesus. Or maybe when things are not so good. Like you snapped at your family. You're struggling with sin. You've given in to temptation. Then if you even approach Jesus at all, it's with trepidation. You see, a lot of times we relate to God in a way about our own righteousness 
what that exposes is not that we're poor in spirit, but that we are too dependent upon our own spirit. Do you have times when, you approach, when your approach to God is dependent on how your life is going? I ask that again. Is the current state of your holiness the determining factor with how you engage with God? And I suspect that all of us in the room would at least at some point say yes. Some days we're like, absolutely. And there may be some of us in here that do that more than others, but I think we all have at least done it at some point. And if, you, if this is you right now, if you're like, oh my gosh, I do that. I do approach Jesus that way then it's good news because he's showing you that you've exchanged the way of his kingdom for the kingdom of this world. He's inviting you into a counter kingdom where being poor in spirit is blessed. He's inviting you lower is what he's doing. What is a poor spirit? Is one who understands their spiritual bankruptcy before God. And for some of us, the idea of being poor in spirit might just sound awful. Like, sure, Jesus says it's a blessing, but how on earth could it be? It just sounds so awful to be poor in spirit. And what comes is even more of a shock to us is he doesn't just say the poor in spirit are blessed. Notice the way he finishes verse three. He says it comes with a possession. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit who have nothing to offer God are both blessed and are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now this feels very counter to what we would expect. Like we think it's the good guys. We think it's like the people that have their life put together that God's like, oh, finally, come on in. I've been waiting on that. But instead he says the poor in spirit are the ones that are welcomed in. It's so counter, it's so counter to us, it's so counter kingdom because where the poor in spirit are blessed, the kingdom of heaven is for them and it's foreign to us and that's because it should be. It's coming from above. Reading the Sermon on the Mount, for us, it might feel like, in a moment, like a fish who's been taken out of water. Like we're disoriented, we can't breathe, we're grasping for reality, like what in the world has happened to me? But the reality is it's actually the reverse. Most of us, when, we live, when we're living within the kingdom of the world, we are actually like a fish out of water. We're like, I want my freedom. I don't have to live in the water if I don't want to, and we're dying. And the Sermon on the Mount is God taking us up and throwing us in the water. And it's disorienting for a minute, but all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, I can breathe. This is actually better than I thought. The Beatitudes are encouraging us to reevaluate what we think we know about life. But initially it's gonna feel a little awful to a lot of us because we don't realize just how oriented we actually are to the kingdoms of this world. So let's consider the air we breathe for a minute. Let's think about the kingdom of the world. What does the kingdom of the world value? Wealth in every kind of way. Financially, materially, spiritually, we value wealth. And this is not to say that wealth is evil, but it's just to say that it's a value of the kingdom of this world. We value a life of independence, financial independence, I want to be financially independent. I don't want to have to depend on others. We value that. We value material independence. Like, why would I rent when I can buy? Why would I not own it if I can? So I don't have to borrow from you. So I don't have to pay you to use your stuff. I'd rather just have my own. We, we value that. And we value spiritual independence. This is seen all the way back into the garden. God says, depend on me. 
I've given you everything to eat. I've given you all this beauty for you to enjoy. I'm just asking you not to eat from that tree. It's the knowledge of, the good, the knowledge of good and evil. I have that knowledge and you can trust me with it. And we're like, I don't think so. I wanted to make my own call. I want to live my own life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. That's spiritual independence. Let me define my truth. And on top of that, especially in America, we value high self-esteem and positive self-talk. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not saying that all of these things are wrong. I'm not saying like we should value negative self-talk and low self-esteem. But what I am saying is that when we value those type of things to hear like I'm poor in spirit is shocking. We don't like it. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? What what does it value? Well, it doesn't value poverty. It's not a flip of the opposite, but it also doesn't say wealth should be the aim of your life. Notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't build up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. It's Matthew 6, 19. How about what does it value in the sense of trust? It values trust in God and dependence on God. Notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, pray this way, give us our daily bread. Not 10 years worth of bread, not a lifetime worth of bread. Give me my bread today, Lord, and I'll trust you for my bread tomorrow. Also in Matthew 6, he talks about don't be anxious about anything. Look at the flowers, look at the birds of the air. God, if he loves them and he takes care of them, he's gonna take care of you. He knows what you need. Don't be anxious. Trust, dependence on God. And it values self-awareness of our need of grace, which means we're not walking around like, I'm a loser, I have no value. No, no, no. We're made in the image of God. We have infinite value, but we are in need of grace. We're in need of grace. We are poor in spirit. We acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. And we we acknowledge that when it comes to spiritual resources, things we can be like, God, don't you want this? That we really have nothing to offer God that he hasn't given us in the first place. To the kingdom of this world being poor in anything screams failure, shame on you. Run from a life like that. And the kingdom of heaven being poor in spirit screams blessed blessed. Why? Because we are utterly dependent on Jesus. And Jesus says that makes us blessed. So my question for you is which kingdom do you feel more at home in? Honestly. Like make no mistake, you're living under the influence of one of them. And because they're overlapping right now, a lot of us are in a tug of war with both. But which one sings the tune that makes your heart sing? Be honest with yourself. Like, do you hear Jesus' words and say, that's the life I want? Or do you think, maybe I need to reconsider whether Jesus is really the one I want to follow? I believe because you're here today, there's a good part of you that does want to follow Jesus. And there's a good part of me that wants to too, but it can be hard. And I believe that we have to see being poor in spirit as more than just a blessing. We have to see being poor in spirit as something that brings more than that. It brings one of the strongest human emotions that exists. It brings hope. 
To understand the hope of the poor in spirit, though, it would help us to see a person who actually is poor in spirit. And I think Psalm 51 gives us a powerful glimpse of a poor spirit. And what's really remarkable about Psalm 51 is actually who the psalmist is. It's David, not a very poor dude. You know, David, King David, he's a king, he's royal, he's wealthy, he's talented. Brother can play the harp and kill a bear with his bare hands. He's rugged, right? He's athletic. Like he'd have been homecoming king. Like not just king of Israel, he'd been homecoming king, right? He's a conquering warrior. And we're also told he's a man after God's own heart. Like this doesn't look like somebody who's poor. Yet David wasn't perfect. He had blood on his hands, both as a warrior, but also he had wandering eyes and they got him in trouble. And so he winds up pursuing a married woman and he has her brought to him. She becomes pregnant. And so David orchestrates the death of her husband who was a soldier for him in battle to cover his own sin of adultery. But God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke David and he calls him to account for his sin. Now, how does David respond? Does he say, hush, I'm the king. Don't you come up in here like that. I do what I please. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. Does he say, who are you, you little measly prophet to come and enter my courts and call me to account? No, he didn't do that either. David responds with Psalm 51. And I want us to notice, we're not gonna read the whole Psalm. I want you to notice though, how his spirit is towards the Lord. Look at Psalm 51, three and four. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Ever felt like that? been found out. I felt like that in college a lot. My sin, not that I don't feel that now. Don't want to say like, that was then, I'm awesome now. No, but I'm just remember, like I can remember that, those moments. Y'all have heard, if you've been here long, you've heard a lot of my story. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What do we see? We see David sees his own poverty of spirit. He has sinned against God and he knows that God would be just and blameless in however he chose to dealt with David, to deal with David. This is what ownership looks like. Not like, well, she made me do it. I have sinned against you and I cannot see anything. It's right here before me. But notice the way he also engages with God in verse seven. Purge me with hyssop. It's probably not something you've said recently. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, King David's hope was not that he could clean himself up, was that God would make him clean, that God would purify him, would renew his spirit. He knew he needed God to do it for him. What does that mean? It means he was poor in spirit. He knew he needed help 
from outside of himself. He needed God to do the purging and God to do the washing. And notice the hope of David that if God did these things, he would be clean. He said, purge me with with hyssop and I shall be clean. Not, if you clean me, it's possible it might work. Maybe I'll be clean. No, I shall be clean. It's as if he's saying, I have sinned against you and you alone, but you and you alone can cleanse me. And if you will clean me, Lord, I will be clean. There's no question about it. David's hope was that he would be clean and restored to God by the work of God alone. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. In essence, David is saying, if I, or I, am, in po- I am poor in spirit, Lord, and I am seeking blessing. And my hope is in you. But if you look closely at what David asks, this brings a dilemma. There's a dilemma for our hope. His request creates a bit of a complication because he asks God to do two things that seem contradictory. Hide your face from my sin. Cast me not away from your presence. How can God do both? How can God hide his face from our sins and the sins of those who are poor in spirit and yet simultaneously not cast us away from his face? How can he do that? How can Jesus bless the poor in spirit and give them the kingdom of heaven? Well, we need a resolution to our dilemma. In the the Old Testament, this remains a mystery, how that could work. But in the New Testament, it becomes more clear We come to Jesus. Now, if you've been here very long, you're like, again, come to Jesus? Yes, again, every day. We come to Jesus. We don't come to Jesus with our hands full of what we can offer him, though. We don't come and go, I know I messed up, but look at all the good stuff I've done. No, maybe he'll love me and accept me. No, we don't come with a resume. As we talked about in our prayer sermon three weeks ago, we come to Jesus like the tax collector in the prayer who comes into the temple and just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's who went home justified. Not the Pharisee, the tax collector. We come to Jesus with empty hands and a resume that says, I believe only you can make me clean, but I believe you can make even a person like me clean. You see, Jesus is the only way we can become clean, but some of us in here think that if we are really poor in spirit, we'd be like, I don't even know if Jesus can save me. No, that's pride. Yeah, Jesus' blood was good for a lot of people, but I'm really that bad. That's actually not poor in spirit, that's pride. We come and we say, I believe only you can make me clean, but yet I believe that you can even make me clean. And here's the beautiful thing about coming to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, poor in spirit, there's another promise we have. In John chapter six, verse 37, Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And here's what he says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you see that, church? 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. We come to Jesus as we are with our sin and our need for him to clean us and to renew us. And Jesus says, I will never cast you out of my presence. And we come to Jesus this way, not because he's like, you gotta grovel a little bit. He doesn't delight in that. We come to this way because brothers and sisters, this is our objective reality. Every single one of us. We are all in this room poor in spirit. All of us are. But the blessed, the happy are the ones who realize it, acknowledge it, and come to Jesus. And for those who do, he says, I'll never cast you out. Never, ever, ever, never. Is that hard to believe? It is for me, but as we close, I I want us to see it. I want us to not just see it, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to feel the reality that being poor in spirit is a blessing. When you come to Jesus, poor in spirit, and you say, oh my gosh, hide your face from my sins, please, Lord, but cast me not away from your presence. His response is, I don't have to hide my face from your sins. Nathan, I don't have to do that. I've already dealt with your sins on the cross. I have gone so far as to remove your sins from the east to the west. So now, by your faith in me, you are welcome in my presence and in my kingdom. And once you're in, I'm never casting you out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the doorway through which we see all the other Beatitudes. That's why it's first. And it's the doorway through which we enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The call to action today, if you're in the room and you would say that you don't follow Jesus, or maybe you thought you did. I'm not trying to get you to question it, but I'm saying maybe you thought you did, and now you're like, I don't know. The call for you is to swap kingdoms today. There's no middle ground. Once you're in the kingdom of heaven, he's never gonna cast you out. There's no middle ground, even though you may be in the tug of war in your heart. But the call would be to swap kingdoms Come to Jesus to experience the blessing of him being all that you need and all that you have. That may sound like, how's that a blessing? It's a blessing. But sometimes you gotta walk in that before you can see it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I would encourage you three things quickly here. Number one, to find blessing in being poor in spirit. To see the poorness of your spirit and not be like, oh, I wish I wasn't that way. I wish I felt more, more strong spiritually. And yeah, I mean, we, we need to grow in that, but to realize like that there's nothing that you could offer God that's gonna be like, well, now I really enjoy in your company. That he loves you and he draws you in already the way that you are. I say this a lot because I think it's important because I wrestle with it. 
He's not holding out for the future you to actually live up to his expectation. He loves you where you are. Find blessing in the poor in spirit and then find joy in living in the kingdom of heaven. And the only way you're gonna find joy in the kingdom is to find blessing in the poor in spirit. And then lastly, to find assurance that he'll never cast you out. So as we close here, we're gonna pray. If you wanna come forward, of course, we will have people from our prayer team here to pray with you or to pray by yourself or pray where you are. But let's ask the spirit to, to speak softly to us and to encourage us. Our Father, we are in your presence even right now. There's nowhere we can go and the Psalms say that There's no height that we could go. There's no depth that we can go, that we can flee from your presence, that you are there, you are with us. Jesus coming to earth in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, that you are with us. You understand the tug of our hearts. And so I just pray this morning right now, Lord, that you would just... um, you just awaken us. I think so many of us, myself included, we, we get so comfortable in the kingdom of this world. We are lulled to sleep as though everything we see, that we see before us is all that this life is about. Would you wake us up, Lord, for the glory of your name and honestly, just so that we can have a deeper joy to live from something bigger, something beautiful. God, would you open our eyes? Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for not looking at our poor spirits and having wanting to have nothing to do with us, but rather, God, thank you for saying, I see your need for me and I wanna bless you. Come to me. I'll never cast you out. Thank you, God, for that promise. May it enrich our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.